There was a journalist who was assigned to the Jerusalem Bureau and who rented an apartment in Jerusalem overlooking the Western Wall. And as she looked out each day over the Western Wall, she saw this one particular elderly man that would go to the wall every single day and pray for a large part of the day. And so as a journalist, she was kind of curious and she went down and asked this old man to tell me, uh, how long have you been coming here to the wall to pray and what is it exactly you're praying for? The old man breathed deeply and looked at her and said, well, I, I've come here every day for 25 years to pray. In the morning, I pray for world peace and the brotherhood of man. And then I go have some lunch and some tea, and I come back, and in the afternoon, I pray for the end of all illness and disease in the earth. And the journalist was fascinated, and she says, well, that's, that's wonderful. Tell me, how does it make you feel to come here every day for 25 years and to pray for these things? And the old man looked at her kind of sadly and said, it feels like I'm talking to a wall. You know, we've heard a lot about hope lately in politics. Some have built their entire campaign around the idea of hope. A hope for the future that amounts honestly to optimism and to possibilities, maybe even probabilities. And these campaigns that we're, that we're seeing begin this fall and as as they keep going, you'll continue to see how the campaigns, the presidential campaigns, are a great microcosm of what the world wants you to think. Or I should say, how the world wants you to think. How the world wants you to process in your thinking. And as you watch, be a critical thinker. Don't just be enamored with the marketing and the media and the image. Listen to what is said. Listen to the substance as well as the image. You'll see that I think by and large the, the motivation is in image rather than in substance. I remember when my grandma was alive, she spoke of some political candidate whose views by and large were pretty opposite of much of what the Bible taught. And she said she voted for him. And I said, why in the world would you vote for that guy? And she said, well, he seemed nice. She was, like many people in America, influenced by the image that was presented as opposed to the real agenda behind the image. One individual this week said that hope, quote, is God's greatest gift to us, the bedrock of this nation, a belief in things not seen, a belief that there are better days ahead. You know, I read that and I thought, but what is that hope based in? Because God's never promised anything to the United States of America as far as better days ahead. What is the hope based in? True hope, a biblical hope, is rooted not in just what we'd like to happen or even the probability of something 
happening. True biblical hope is rooted in what God promises will happen. Otherwise, it's just wishful thinking, if it's rooted in anything else. Today, we're finishing our series on the spiritual disciplines. That is, the, the practices throughout history and as recorded in Scripture that believers have done that have been the means by which we grow in our relationship with Christ. It's not anything that earns us any points with God, but rather we do it in response to God's grace. Because God has graciously saved us, the Bible tells us, now here are some things that you can do as a believer in order to grow in your relationship with Christ. You can read the Bible. You can pray. You can serve. You can worship. And today we're going to talk about the discipline of hope. One of the things that you can do as a believer is to biblically hope. If you look at the word hope throughout the scripture, in the Old Testament, the word that's often used for hope is also the word that's used for a cord, like a rope. And the idea of a cord and hope working together, the idea there is kind of a metaphor of something that you're hoping for that you're bound to or that you're tied to that it is concrete. In fact, the New Testament word for hope is a word that looks forward to something with confidence. It's not wishing. It's not like, I hope it rains today, but I don't really know if it will. It's a hope that is based in something confident, something that you're certain of. Our hope for the future should not be in a political candidate or in a government. The purpose of government, according to scripture, is never to give us hope. The purpose of government is to curb evil in society and to give us a relatively safe environment so that the church can do the good work that it was intended to do and share the gospel and lives be changed. Lives really aren't intended to be changed through government. They're intended to be changed through the church. Government's purpose is to protect us so that the church can do the work that it's intended to do. So where do we get hope then? The Bible tells us that there is one event that provides hope, one single event for the believer. And that is the fact that Christ has gone to prepare a place for you, and he's coming to get you to take you there. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. The last couple of chapters of the Bible give us more information on heaven per square inch than many other places in the scripture combined. Outside of Jesus' comment in the book of John that he's gone to prepare a place for us and that he will come again to take us there, we have precious few verses that, that describe heaven. And so prior to John writing Revelation, we didn't really have a really good idea of what heaven was going to be like. At some verses, many in the Old Testament prophets that would give glimpses of what heaven would be like. But as far as the breadth of detail, we don't have that until the last two chapters of Scripture. In Revelation 21, starting in verse 1, we begin to answer the question, what will heaven be like? Look at that with me. The Apostle John said, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth 
passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. Whenever you think of living forever in heaven, what I have just read is what you are thinking, where you are thinking of being. In the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. How they are linked together, how they are joined together, the scripture, even here in Revelation, doesn't tell us, except that they are a unit and that believers will have access to each and every part of, uh, of the eternal state of the new heaven, the new earth, and this new city, the holy city, Jerusalem. From the time of the Exodus, way back in the beginning, some many thousands of years ago, God has wanted to live with his people. God has always wanted to be with his people. In fact, in the Garden of Eden, the implication is that God regularly walked with Adam and Eve so that they could recognize him when they heard him walking. After they had sinned, they hid Fellowship with God was intended from the beginning to be the norm, that he would dwell among his people. But after that, we're hidden from God. After sin, now we're hidden from God. We can't behold his glory. And so the time of the Exodus, God dwells among his people, but it's hidden behind the tabernacle veil. Only the high priest once a year could go into that Holy of Holies and actually see the glory of God there above the Ark of the Covenant. And then he indwelled the Holy Spirit, or the, the glory of God, indwelt the temple after Solomon built it. And then after the, he left the glory of the temple, then he indwelled the temple of Jesus, you might say. that His glory tabernacled among us, John said in John chapter 1. That, that the glory of God dwelt within Jesus Christ, and Jesus dwelt among us. A presence that we had never had before prior to the time of Christ. And after Jesus left, he says, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'll send the Comforter, the, the Holy Spirit, to be with you. And now the Holy Spirit indwells believers. And we are the temple of God. And yet in all of these instances, the glory of God is veiled. You don't see it. Only a few times throughout history, God has peeled back the curtain of this veil and you're able to see the actual glory of God. Once when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up into a high mountain, and he actually showed them who he really was. He was transfigured, or his appearance changed, and his face became as bright as the sun, his clothes as white as they could be. And the disciples, of course, hit the dirt in terror. But Jesus was revealing his true glory and all of its greatness. That is the glory that we will behold the Lord Jesus in heaven. And look at what our dear Savior, who will dwell among us in all his glory, will do. Look at what he'll do for us. Look at verse 4. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain the first things have passed away. 
And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. You know, as the band sang, I can only imagine. It's hard for us to imagine what is described here. <clears throat> An existence without pain. An existence without tears at all. Without any mourning. Without any death. Without any crying. The first things we're told will pass away. That is, all that we know now, the present heaven, the present earth, and all our pain will pass away. And there will be a new existence, a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. And we're also told that the one who thirsts, and again, John wrote Revelation, John wrote the book of John, and we have Jesus using the same language in John 4 when he spoke to a woman at a well in Shechem and said, if you really knew who it was talking to you, I'm not just a man, but I'm the Messiah, you'd ask me for living water and I'd give it to you. It's the same kind of thirst Jesus spoke to that woman who was searching for all that the world could offer and yet found it futile. She was searching for it in men and in relationships as if a person could satisfy her. She found it futile and yet she found satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ who gave her living water. That's the thirst that Jesus is talking about here. To find the futility in the world and yet to find that thirst satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice that he says, the one who wants that and who comes to me for it, I will give it to him without cost. That is grace. You can do nothing to earn that kind of, that kind of life. It's given to you without cost. It's God's grace. In fact, the scripture shows us that nobody in heaven is going to be in heaven as a reward for a great life. It's by grace. Heaven will be an eternal tribute to the grace of God an eternal tribute to God's grace because nobody's going to be there that deserves to be there on their own. They will be an eternal tribute to the attribute of grace. What is grace? Jerry Bridges had a great illustration. <clears throat> Kathy and I heard him share this some weeks ago. He said that when he was a young boy that his mom, during the Great Depression, his mom would often feed lunches, uh, meals to hobos. They, they had a train track that would go right by their farmhouse and sometimes hobos would hop off because they knew that if they came to their house that they could get a free meal. And he's, Bridges described this and he says, you know, some people would call that grace. These guys could give us nothing. They didn't deserve it at all to get this meal and yet my mom and her generosity provided them a meal. He says, that's grace, but you know, grace actually goes further than that. A better illustration would be, and he said this never happened, but a better illustration would be if these hobos jumped the, jumped the train, we fed them a meal, they robbed us blind, and then in a few months when the train came back around, they came again and asked for a meal, and then my, my mother would feed them. That is, the grace is not simply unmerited favor, 
but it's getting God's favor when we deserved God's curse. To give favor when you deserve a curse. To get heaven when, honestly, you deserved hell. Hell is going to be an eternal, eternal monument to God's justice. Heaven is an eternal monument to God's grace. And then if that grace is refused, look at the next verse, verse 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. First death is physical. We all experience that. The second death is spiritual. That is a separation eternally from God. That's the second death described here where those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ are cast into the lake of fire, are cast into hell. You know, it would be wrong for me to hold out to you the delights of what heaven is going to be like and then not offer you a chance to receive it. Many of you I know here today have already placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And yet there may be some of you who have come today and do not know that if you were to die at this moment, where you would be. That you're banking on a life of good works, church attendance, prayer, that God will let you into heaven. And yet, what are you going to do with your sin? It's a great question that I love to ask people when I'm talking to them about Christ. What are you going to do with your sin? You lived a good life? Fantastic. That's admirable. But what are you going to do with your sin? You know, if you lop your arm off and uh, then, then exercise like crazy and, and eat healthy and everything, your arm's not going to grow back. No amount of good physical attention to your body is going to cause that decision that you made to ever be changed. Physically, that arm is not going to grow back. Same thing is true spiritually. If you sin, you can live a whole life of good works and it's not going to make up for the fact that you sinned. And in God's presence, he requires absolute perfection. And you bring your sin into God's presence, how long do you think that you'll remain? What are you going to do with your sin? The problem is your sin. And your sin has got to be removed. And it's exactly what the Lord Jesus did when he died on the cross. That all of the sin that you deserve to have punished was placed on Jesus. When he died, it was punished. And so no longer does it need to be punished. Your sin, my sin, was placed on Christ. It's been taken care of. And our sins are forgiven, we're told, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. So for us, we get forgiveness without cost. What it cost the Father, it cost him the death of his Son. So there was a cost, but for us, it was without cost. You must believe if you haven't. And what we've talked about here today, heaven will be given to you free. When my mom died last Thanksgiving, I remember when we drove away from the graveside, we were talking about, you know, how odd it was to think that, you know, her body is in the ground. When, you know, a week ago, she was up and walking and talking and everything. Such an odd change. And we drove away and we were talking about that, and my sister asked me, she said, is she in heaven? And she didn't mean that was mom a believer and all that, and we know that mom was a believer, but rather, is she in heaven or is her soul still there in the ground, just waiting for Christ to come? 
And we talked about what the Apostle Paul said, that is to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. That if we are no longer in our body, then we are present with the Lord. And how the Apostle Paul said that no eye has ever seen, no ear has ever heard, no mind has ever conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. How can you describe the indescribable? How can you imagine the unimaginable? How can you express the inexpressible? That's what heaven is given as an inexpressible idea. And as it is expressed, the, the, the Apostle John describes what he saw. And even in the description of it, it's glorious, and yet it doesn't come close to the real thing. A beautiful city, bright with the glory of God. And the city, and we're not going to read all the detail of it because we don't have time to read both of these chapters, but the city is laid out as a square. You get a, an idea of how big something is. We're very familiar with how big our country is. We're told that this new Jerusalem, this holy city, is going to be about this big. It's going to be about 15, well, 14, 14, 1500 miles wide and long. That's about from Canada to the Gulf and about from Colorado to the Atlantic. Now that's pretty big, and that is a city. But not only is it that wide and that high, uh, that depth, but it's also that tall. Look at this. It, it is a cube. It is also 1,400 miles high. Now think about that. That is pretty big, pretty tall city. And we're told that this city is constructed of a gold that is transparent. That it's completely transparent. And the glory of Christ fills the whole city. So just imagine this place that, that you can see straight through and the glory of God fills the whole thing. And it's that huge. That is where we will live for eternity. Look down at verse 22 as John explains this further. He said, And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. All throughout Scripture, when you see God's glory, there is incredible light. Brilliant light, usually described as bright as the sun. A light that in our natural human eyes we can't even look at. Which is why most often when people are exposed to God's glory, they hit the dirt in a coil of shame and terror. Because it is a presence so holy that we in our sinfulness can't bear to look on it. And yet we're told that in, in, the, in the eternal state we will have a body that will allow us to be able to gaze full into the glory, 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. We won't need the sun and the moon because this entire enormous city is made of pure transparent gold and is illumined by the glory of God. What are we going to do there? What are we going to do in heaven? Remember Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn, what Huck said? He said he wasn't real sure he wanted to go to a place, quote, where all a body would have to do is go around all day long with a harp and sing forever and ever. And a lot of people have this mentality that that's all we're going to be doing in heaven is singing and playing harps. The harps, I'm not real sure where we get that from the scriptures. And the halos, you know, that's nothing but Renaissance paintings. What are we going to be doing there? Look at chapter 22, starting in verse 3. We're told, And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads, and there shall no longer be any night and they shall not have need of the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. We're told, first of all, that we are going to serve Christ. And throughout the rest of Scripture, we know that our service in the eternal state is based somehow on the quality, not the quantity, but the quality of our service in this life which is something that ought to really shake us to reality. No matter the humble service, no matter the great service in eternity, it's going to be an honor, and we will be glad to be there. Better is one day in the Lord's house than a thousand elsewhere, no doubt. But his servants shall serve him. That is our task. It's very simply stated. We're not told how, we're not told what, but simply that we will serve the one who died for us. We're also, we're told that believers shall see his face. Remember in the song we sang, Better is One Day, that there was that verse that says, One thing I ask that I seek, to see your glory. That's basically what Moses asked for. Back on Sinai, he said, Lord, I pray, let me see your glory. And God said, look, at this time, nobody's going to see my glory. But what I'll do is I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll put my hand over you. And after I pass, I'll move my hand and let you see the backside of me, which is incredible in the thought in and of itself. But the point is, you couldn't look on the face of God in your humanity. And yet we're told right here, very simply, not a big deal is made of it, and yet all throughout the rest of Scripture you read this, and you're left with your jaw dropped, realizing that be able to look into the face of God. Shall see his face. And finally, we're told again, very simply, they shall reign forever and ever with Christ. It's not very descriptive, is it? And yet, how do you describe the indescribable? It's just very simply stated. This is what we will do, and what a privilege it will be. Look at the screen for a moment at how Peter relates this marvelous hope to today. In 1 Peter 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The hope we have, Peter says, is a living hope. It's confirmed, confirmed by the fact that Jesus not only died for our sins, but he also rose from the dead. It is a living hope. And the phrase that he gives here literally could be translated, those who are continually guarded by God's power. You who are protected by the power of God. If you have faith that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, you are protected by the power of God. This inheritance is reserved in heaven for you, and it can never be taken away. What difference does this make to our lives? We've talked about a lot of the great promises of the future. So what? What is the purpose of prophecy, of giving us this great insight about the future? We're told very simply that the Bible never reveals the future without an application of our lives today. You're never going to see it revealed in the future without a challenge for today. And what is that challenge? Peter spoke of the security of our great salvation. And in the very next verse, look at the screen at what he says. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Helen Keller once said that character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through experience of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, vision cleared, ambition inspired, and success achieved. Only through trial and suffering. Mother Teresa once said, I knew God would not give me anything I can't handle. I just wish he didn't trust me so much. Peter says we're distressed by various trials. You know, we don't have to go very far in life or read very far in this text to say, you know what, you're exactly right. We are distressed in this life. And our problem so often is, as was the disciples' problems, and this is what we're going to see in a couple of weeks when we get back in the book of Mark, that their problem was that they wanted heaven prior to the cross that they didn't want to have to go through the cross. And they kept doing everything. Every time Jesus brought up the cross, the disciples would bring up how great they were. They didn't want to look at the cross. They wanted the crown. They wanted Jesus the Messiah, not Jesus the suffering servant. And we're the same way. We are distressed by various trials, and our desire is to try to get out of these trials and to find heaven on earth here and now. And yet Peter says, now for a little while, if necessary, you're going to be distressed with these trials. And yet at the same time, he says, you greatly rejoice. Now, how in the world can that happen? How can you be distressed with various trials and at the same time, greatly rejoice? Because that is the life of a believer. To be faithful in the struggle here and now, knowing that it's temporary. It's just for a little while. But you greatly rejoice that your salvation, which is to be revealed, is forever. The purpose of all the revelation about heaven is that you will daily think about eternity 
and live in light of it. The purpose of all God gives you when he talks to you about heaven is that you will daily think about eternity and live in light of it. There was an African student named Lawrence who said this. He said, I've been in the United States for several months now. I've seen the great wealth that's here, the fine homes and cars and clothes. I've listened to many sermons in churches here too, but I've yet to hear one sermon about heaven. Because everyone has so much in this country, no one preaches about heaven. People here don't seem to need it. In my country, most people have very little, so we preach on heaven all the time. We know how much we need it. Just this week, I got a letter from a pastor in Africa, ironically, same place, in which he said that he read an article that uh, I did in, a, in our magazine down at the seminary. Somehow it got, him, got to him over there, and he said he read that, and it said that it encouraged him, and he also says, so why don't you come over and encourage our folks, but and I don't know that that'll happen, but the point is, is he says, our people are so desperately struggling. We need a message of hope. And we don't have that very often here in the States. And our big struggle is how are we going to pay our mortgage? Our big struggle is often the fact that we've gotten too much in, in debt. George Gallup's research reveals that 71% of us believe in an afterlife. 71% of Americans, and yet nobody talks about it very much. Our affluence here in America has almost removed our need and our longing for heaven. I mean, we hope for it, we're, we're looking forward to it, but there's not that passion to be there because much of our hope for heaven has been taken care of here and now. Philip Yancey once wrote, percentages don't apply to eternity, of course, but for the sake of argument, let's assume that 99% of our existence will take place in heaven. Isn't it a little bizarre that we simply ignore heaven, acting as if it doesn't matter? How does the hope of heaven help you to live today? That's the challenge that we've placed before you. How does it help you to live today? To think about eternity daily and then to live in light of it? How does that help you? Because it gives you the motivation not to quit. It gives you the motivation, motivation to persevere, to stay moral in your relationships, to stay honest in your business. In a relationship, if there's a struggle, in your marriage, if there's a struggle, not to quit, but to hang in there, because this too shall pass. The hope of heaven challenges us to persevere because it gives us perspective. And to use Yancey's illustration, if heaven is 99% of our existence, and it's not, it's much more, and that one little percent is here and now, that ought to give us the strength and the challenge to persevere and not quit, but to hang in there. What is it that you're struggling with right now? All the prophecy about heaven. In fact, at the end of Revelation, the challenge is that Jesus says, look, I will come and I will give to everyone according to his deeds. It doesn't mean you'll earn heaven by salvation. It's a challenge to persevere because he will bring rewards to those who are believers. 
part of that reward is a faithful opportunity for continued faithful service in the kingdom of God. How does the hope of heaven help you live today? Perseverance. Realizing this life is temporary. You looked at your body lately? It's winding down to death. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. You and I have friends and family who are dying. The reality is this is not our home. This is merely a way station through which we are called to be faithful until finally Christ calls us home and then we're home. You will see those loved ones again. I will see my dear family again. I will get to embrace my mom, my grandma, both my grandmothers, my grandfather, many of my loved ones who have died, your loved ones and friends who have died and who have gone on before you. They have not ceased to exist. They have simply changed their address. And they are waiting in the glory of Christ. And we will see them again. I remember when Richard and Rachel Moore announced that they were going to be moving. And my daughters are just so close with them. And they remember standing in the kitchen one day, and Katie was just kind of standing there staring at the ground. I said, what's wrong? And she says, I don't want them to move. And I said, you know, Katie... Heaven is as real as this kitchen we're standing in. And one day, we're going to be standing there in heaven, and we'll be with the Moors again. It's a real place, and we're all going, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus. C.S. Lewis, the atheist who later trusted Christ, said this, If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Because our challenge, as Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, is not to seek first God's kingdom. Our challenge is, what are we going to wear? What are we going to eat? Jesus says, the pagans, the unbelievers run after these things. You, you seek first God's kingdom. You set your mind on things above. And that principle that Christ laid out on the Sermon on the Mount, you see all throughout the epistles. In fact, look at the screen at what Paul told the Colossian church. He said, If then, or you could translate it, Since then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. What a marvelous promise and a marvelous perspective. To set your mind on things above. Now that doesn't mean that you don't go to work, that you don't mow the yard, that you aren't do your daily tasks. But what it means is that in your daily tasks, your priority is God's kingdom and not everything else. 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul said, For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Look around. Everything you see is temporary. Even me, as far as this body, thank the Lord. One day it will be changed. 
into a glorious body like Christ. Same with you. Everything you see one day will disintegrate in a big flaming ball of fire. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth and new bodies for our eternal souls. Everything you see, the things that are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen, our souls, the things in the heavens, that's what's eternal. And we get so caught up day to day on the things that are seen. To all the pain in this life, you can append the statement, this too shall pass. I want you to listen to a song before we leave. One of the benefits of listening to a recording is you're not distracted by a performance. Performances are great. Our band does a great job. But a great benefit to a recording is you don't have to look at anything. You can just sit there, you can close your eyes, and you can listen to the great truth that's being sung. Would have been nice to have Alison Krauss come and sing it for us, but she would have been distracted. So instead, we'll listen. I'd like us to pray together, and then after the song, we'll be dismissed. So let's bow. Our Father, your Spirit inspired our brother Peter to say, And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Father, we are so eager for heaven and so grateful that it is our certain future. We're grateful also, Lord, though while we are eager, that you tarry, that you wait, that many who don't know about you might come to know you. We know that in your perfect promise that there is not one who is predestined for glory who will escape. That, Lord, your grace calls to all your elect and all of your elect will answer. And I pray, Father, for one who may be here today who has yet to place their faith in their Savior and has their faith perhaps in themselves or some other place. That your Spirit might convict their heart and invite them in that they might place their faith in Jesus. And to all of us, Lord, who have already made that decision and who are walking as pilgrims through this life waiting for the next, I pray that you would give us a perspective that is bigger than the duties that we're encumbered with this week, that our perspective would be eternal, that what is seen as temporary and what is unseen is forever. So as we look ahead to heaven's bright shore, I ask, Father, that you would broaden our perspective and so deepen our commitment to walking faithfully with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, this is Wayne Stiles. You can receive a weekly devotional by email by subscribing to my blog at waynestiles.com. There you'll also find resources for devotional and Bible land study, as well as a way for us to connect via Facebook and Twitter. There's even an opportunity to support this weekly podcast with a donation. That's waynestyles.com. Thanks for listening.